Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. In Hollywood, it's so easy not to see your own progress. Sure, maybe you did this one thing, but it's not an Oscar. Someone else did more. Even Oscar winners suffer from imposter syndrome, wondering when they'll be found out as no-talent frauds and kicked out of their careers. Even just coming here and declaring you're going to be an actor, be a writer, be a filmmaker can take a huge leap of faith, and the strange realization that no one is going to give you permission to do so. Filmmaker Zaki Rubinstein has carved out a career for herself despite the conflicting messages of family, you can do whatever you set your mind to, and industry. Women aren't given positions of power here. Today, we talk about keeping your head up and moving forward in Hollywood. For those of us who have like, you know, more like aspire to be working in TV production, like you're there, like you're a working director, right? I mean, aside Uh, from lockdown. I mean, kind of, I'm not, you know, where I want to be, but, um, you know, it's uh, it's pretty impressive that uh, anyone can make a living doing it. So I guess yes. um, to that extent, I have to count my blessings. Yes. Well, and I think there's that, like, we're never where we want to be in this industry, I feel like. And until, you know, like, if, unless you have that Oscar, it's just sort of like you never feel, at least I don't, like, I don't feel like, oh, I haven't done anything. I still haven't done, I, I think all, that to- all the time to myself, I still haven't done anything. But if you look, like if I look back, I'm like, well, but I'm feeling at higher height and higher levels. Like I have access to people and things that I didn't have access to 10 years ago. Or you may not be, you know, up here, but you're a lot further than down there, you know? Yeah. And I think the trap is really to compare yourself to other people because it's, that's just stupid. Everyone has their own journey and their own yeah, you know, their own thing. And you just have to kind of enjoy yours because it's all you have. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the really weird poisoning things about here is like, like when I was at in film school and, you know, we were writing and everybody's like trying to get their scripts out there. And then one person had a, a really early success, like right out the gate, got her script bought by, I don't know, Miramax at the time or whatever. And I remember feeling just so insanely jealous. Like I wasn't happy for her at all. I was just so mad. And then another friend of mine who'd graduated years ahead of me was like, oh, welcome. You're one of us now, bitter over a friend's success. <laughs> and, I, and I just thought, is that, is that, is that it? Is that the milestone? Is like, am I, am, I, am I here now? Cause I'm bitter that my friend got something good. Well, you know, I used to be an actor and uh, I felt it a lot more acutely. I was also younger. So you know, didn't have the, the wisdom of age, but, um, but, you know, with actors, it's, uh, it's visceral and immediate yes. because you're in a room with other people that could get the job. And then, you know, and then you start seeing the same faces over and over yeah. again that you're competing with and it's, uh, and you run into them in the quarter and they're like, oh yes, well, I just uh, shot, you know, an episode of Lost and, you know, and I, oh yeah, I'm up for a feature with Spielberg and, and you're just like... <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm here, you know, auditioning for a toilet paper commercial. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, those Charmin bears make bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's like this weird, like bitterness is a sort of a part of it, but just part of being here in this industry. And I'm like, I don't know how to not have that, like how to get beyond it, but you know, it's clearly not good. I think -limiting. these days I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good because I also feel like you don't know what the experiences of those people in those jobs true. are. They might be yeah. miserable. Like That's they might true. be working with horrible people they might, you know, have, you know, all the success and have all this like emotional pressure and anxiety that's, that makes it in incredibly not fun for them. You never know what people are going through and what they, so it's, it's really, we all know this, that jealousy and envy is really a waste of emotion. Yeah. It's a waste of your energy. It doesn't do anything, you know, for anyone. Yeah. We still do it because we're human. Um, but if we can just sort of recognize it and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm just not going to do this thing right now. Yeah. It's a huge waste of energy. I've, I've had that a couple times, even this week. Yeah. I mean, it's important to recognize and let yourself feel that, um, because we all want to, you know, we want our stuff out there. We want our, yeah. you know, there's a reason why we, we chose this, um, this profession and, um, and we want our voices to be heard, you know, and this is, it, we not only want that, but we also want to be able to pay our rent and our health insurance and all that stuff. So that's, it's, it's problematic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seems in a like country, in a country that has no real social safety net, you right. know, I have a friend who's an actor in France and he's, he's a, I have a, one of my friends from here moved to France, married a Frenchman and he's an actor and he basically gets a stipend to be an artist. <laughs> and so he gets X amount of money per month to audition when he's not making money. So when right. he's making money from acting, that stipend stops for the time that he get, has the job. But then when he's done with the job, he can go back to the stipend and pay his bills that way. And so that he can be doing free theater and free movies for, you know, filmmakers that are just starting out and all the stuff to build up his, you know, because France recognizes that the arts are important and this, they need, sometimes artists need patronage, you know, because yeah. we can't, you know, you're not going to, if you have to work as an account, Moonlight as an accountant, accountant, uh, you're not going to be able to produce the next, uh, you know, a great American novel. Right. Maybe you can, you know, if you, you're doing it at night, you know, for an hour here or there. But like, can you imagine if you didn't have to do all this other stuff for money, what you could be doing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Be perfecting your craft. You could be a lot further down the line if yeah. you didn't have to worry about all this other stuff. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the key thing is voices. Like what voices would we have? What voices are we missing because right. of things like that? And in this country, we're so worried about like people gaming the system, you know, people, you know, taking the money, but then not really working on their craft and not really, you know, auditioning and not really like trying to, you know, to, to be a professional in their field uh, and just kind of like, you know, doing nothing or whatever. I don't know what they think. Um, but, uh, you know, there's very specific guidelines there. Like you have to have X amount of professional jobs and like mm -hmm. they vet you. It's not like, you know, anyone off the street can go, I'm an artist. <laughs> Give me money. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is a lot harder. And I feel like that's a whole nother social issue, but yeah. definitely. Where did you, where did you grow up? Where are you from? 
All right. I have kind of an interesting story. Um, so, <laughs> so I was born in, in California and I was born into a commune, a very large commune um, slash cult. I don't know. Everyone has their own definition. It was, uh, uh, it was called Sinanon. And um, yeah. Uh, wow. I lived there um, until I was five. My parents um, got divorced when I was five. And when I was six, I went to live with my mom. My mom left. And there was a very bitter, um, mm. contentious uh, custody battle. And my mom won custody. So my brothers and I went to live with my mom in Los Angeles for two years. And then we moved to Israel. Wow. So, so my- culture shock and then culture shock. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're that little, does it register as culture shock or is it just? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like moving to Mars. Like, you, you know, I was like this typical California kid and I moved to this place where the, everything was different. The language, the culture, the people, the, you know, everything was weird. Now, luckily, children are like little sponges and I, within six months, was fluent in the language and I was making, fun. you know, I remember we moved to this sort of immigration um center where it had people from all over the world and none of us spoke each other's languages. And I remember playing with the kids there. Um, no problem at all. Cause we didn't need language. Right. right? We just needed like a stick or whatever. <laughs> like, wow. So yeah. And so children are so incredibly adaptable and amazingly yeah. social. Um, that wasn't really a problem, but it was, it was definitely, um, a huge adjustment and really weird. And so it took a while to sort of feel like home. And then my whole family still lived in the United States, like all mm-hmm. of my uh, close relatives. So I spent the my childhood living most of the time during the school year, I lived in Israel. And then in the summertime, I would come and visit my dad, only it wasn't really California because I would go back to the, to the cult. Oh gosh, what was that like? So, <laughs> Um, it was just my reality. It it was, yeah, all for me. Um, I mean, it sounds like you you were allowed to come and go. So it's not like you know. Sometimes you think of cults as being like they lock you in. No, I, I was up until a point um, when I was uh, thirteen. Um, the leader of this place decided um, they would do this thing periodically with the kids, where they would um, they would call it back to basics, and it would be like sort of like a boot campy thing, discipline Mm -hmm. situation. And we'd have to like march everywhere in single file lines and do a lot of sport. And, you know, and there were pretty mean adults that were taking care of because the kids didn't live with their parents there. They lived in their own. Um, And so one year when I was 13, I flew, um, you know, 20 hours (laughs) from Tel Aviv to Los Angeles and drove up to the Sequoia Mountains. And uh, I was told that if I wanted to spend the summer, I had to shave my head because that was a part of back to the basics that year. And I was a 13 year old girl. Yeah. And, no. and my dad, of course, wanted me to shave my head. And um, I was really upset. And I got on the phone with my mom and she's like, you know, I can't, it's your decision. It's your head. Like, I can't tell you what to do but it's your head. So you have to make the decision. No one can make it for you. And I told my dad, I can't go back to school with a shade. I mean, the middle school, I mean, I will be, Oh my God. No. That's it's everything at at that age too. Like, Oh no. 
And so I said no. And I ended up um, spending the summer at my grandmother's house in Santa Monica and didn't see my dad that entire uh, uh, summer. And then didn't, was not allowed to come back for like, I think the next time I saw my dad, I was 16. Wow. Oh, it was weird. <laughs> wow. I, um, one of the, the first, one of the, like I've got so many, the first movie that, the first feature that I produced was my, that my partner at the time that wrote it, um, or my filmmaking partner, she had grown up in, with her dad in a similar situation. So the movie is called The Commune. It was a fascinating window into that whole world and like what her childhood had been like. So I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, this place was, um, if you want to look it up, I mean, it's, it was, one of the largest at some point there were like 2000 people living there. You know, I've, I've wanted to make a, a documentary about it for years. That's a whole nother story, but um, that project um, is dead. Oh. Um, but I did a lot of work sort of, um, uh, you know, we have a sizzle reel, we have a pitch deck, we have a, you know, we, yeah. it has implications um, to California and uh, to the world really, because um, there is a legacy from that place. Um, that exists in the world. That's so fascinating. Have you seen that documentary series? And I cannot remember the name of it. Yeah, Wild Wild Country. Yep. Yeah. Because I feel like there's clearly interest. And, and now there's The Vow that's just out, in which I'm super yeah, curious. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah. there's clearly hunger for these types of stories. So yeah. I feel like... Yeah, this was a is it was a unique place. It, it's it was different from all the others. Um, I mean, oh. similar in, the, in, in, you know, in the sort of themes of... Uh, you know, creating a utopian society and, uh, in essentially what's a, a dictatorship, but, um, right. you know, but it, uh, but it had some other kind of unique elements, um, that didn't exist elsewhere. As you're this kid and you're kind of between all these worlds, were there expectations on you to have a certain, you know, go do something practical, be a doctor, be a lawyer, or was it like, Hey, Zaki, go be an artist, whatever. Like, yeah, well, it's, it's the two sides of my family. Mom, my mom and my dad are the, are the yin and the yang, like the little devil and the and the and the, and the little angel. Um, my mom came from a family that are they are intellectual snobs, um, and they uh, always viewed Hollywood as not a real profession or not a real thing. And they also. Um, you know, sort of look down, like really look down at their nose at, at all these like movie folk. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. and my mom has a touch of that, you know, she's over. So yes, I'm a huge disappointment in terms of like, <laughs> um, my dad actually tried to be a producer in his younger years. Um, so, and he, you know, he loves music and he loves, so he's comes from a totally different world and was like, you know, he has a completely different attitude also about what to do with children, which is like, hey, whatever you guys want, I'm good. I'm good with that. Like, I have no I'm not imposing like it's your life. Right. <laughs> Go it. oh my goodness. Um, so and my mom is the exact opposite, which is she tries to control every aspect of our lives because everything is a reflection of, of her. Right. Yeah. That's my it's, mom is similar. Yeah. And I, I think that is the the cardinal sin of of. Uh, the, the original sin of parent parenting, uh, which mm. a lot of people have. And I've tried really, I'm trying really hard with my own kid to kind of let him find his voice and mm -hmm. figure out what he wants to do and support that, whatever that is, and not yeah. impose my own 
So when did you know you wanted to come here and, and try this, you know, starting as an actor? Like, um, so no, no, I, I went to film school. I was going to be a filmmaker. That was always the plan. First day of my junior year of college, um, I was, I had done two years of my general education leading up to, I was going to be an econ major. So I did all this like high level calculus and whatever. And that was my mom's little, you know, devil or angel, whatever you want to call it. Be practical. Saying you need a profession, like you can't, you know, whatever. And I, I was, I was a ballet dancer in my youth and I had always, always been, been attracted to the arts. The arts were always my, my thing, but I thought, okay, I'm in college. Like I'm, I put myself through college. So yeah. I really, 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 really hard <laughs> to get an education. I thought, okay, well, I'm in this academic environment that is definitely not going to take for granted. So I have to, you know, uh, be practical about it. And so I was going to be an econ. And then the night before I started the first day of my junior year, called my dad and I said, dad, I'm, I'm just having second thoughts about this econ thing. I just feel like maybe this isn't me. And, you know, I realized that, that this school has a pretty robust film program. And I think I might want to, what do you, what do you think I should do? And he said, darling, I can't tell you what to do with your life. You got to live it. So whatever you choose, make sure that you love it because, you know, if you're going to spend time doing this, then you're never going to get this time back. Yeah. And then that was it. I was like, and the next day I went in to the counselors and changed my uh, major. And that, that was like 20 years ago. I'm never regretted it. And then, so I, when I moved to, um, moved to LA um, to be a filmmaker, a writer, director. That was my um, ambition. And I got a job, my first job at a college, I got uh, working on Mad About You. Oh my God. Um, yep. I was the first assistant to the executive producer at the time. Amazing. And um, I, uh, a job that I was really not great at, by the way. It was, you know, kind of an 80 hour um, a week job. I had to be there Ooh. well into the night because I had to be there for when the writers were writing until sure. hours in the morning. And I was writing my screenplay on the side and my, on my downtime. And um, it was a, a terrible script. Um, it was a, a sci-fi, uh, sci-fi project that it was in this world where, um, you know, we had destroyed the planet and would... Uh, became more valuable than gold, and it was all about this uh, <laughs> this wood smuggling ring. <laughs> Amazing! It was my, my first screenplay, my first. Um, and uh, anyways, I was going to write and direct it, and I would talk to everyone I knew, and I would say, "I'm going to, I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to do this." And everyone uh, um, sort of looked at me, "Oh, isn't she special?" <laughs> Um, which was, uh, you know, weird because I, I sort of use that opportunity also to be a sponge and really talk to everyone about their job and learn as much as I could about, you know, all of these departments. Like I had done yeah. a lot of that stuff in film school, but I, you know, the practical world, and this was like a really popular TV show. It was yeah. of its popularity. It was like us and friends and uh, Seinfeld at the time. You know, people were really generous with their time and they'd tell me all about what they do and blah, blah, blah. And then they'd ask me, so what do you want to do? And I'd be like, I am going to be a writer director. Ah. 
Um, and so I went to my gay best friend at the time and I said, you know, whenever I say that people look at me, like I have a horn growing out of my head, like what is going on? And, um, he said, well, you know what, I want you to name, name some, you know, directors that you admire. And so I was rattling off all these names and I think I had like Catherine Bigelow in there, but she was, you know, um, the only woman. And, um, he said, well, okay, what do all these people have? in common that you don't. And I said, well, um, I don't know, money connections. Like I, you know, uh, I don't know. They know someone that, and he's like, Oh no, no. Something more like physical on your body. And I was like, Oh, and he's like, I'm sorry, you know, but you know, the reason why people are looking at you strange is that no one's going to let you direct a movie. No one's going to give you financing. It's just, they're just, that this doesn't exist in the world right now, except for Catherine Bigelow. And she happens to be married to James Cameron. So, and I'm sure she had her struggles too, by the way, between oh, us. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I was devastated and I, I kind of like went to bed and cried for three days straight. I was like, Oh, this is my dream. And now it's gone. And I realized that he was right. And so at, at the time I started auditing an acting class because my film school was very great at teaching us all these different uh, technical skills, but nice. they were not great at teaching us how to work with actors for some reason, which is very odd because I went to UCSD, which has the La Jolla Playhouse, which has okay. amazing actors there. And for some reason, the film department and the acting department never really like, um, they, they didn't have a synergy. So, um, I was going, I was auditing this acting class and I, I, you know, after a while I was like, I, I can think I can do this. Um, and I started doing scenes and I talked to the teacher and I said, Hey, I'm thinking about being, and I know I didn't come here to be an actor, but I think I'm, I think I'm going to do this. I, what do you think? Do you think I can do this? And he's like, yeah, I think you can do this. So I was like, great. You know what? There are actresses. Um, they have non penises up on the screen. I can see them working. So yep. there are jobs, right? So I'm going to be an actress. So I completely switched my focus and just decided, okay, I'm going to do the acting thing. And I auditioned and I got bartending jobs and, um, I worked, um, every once in a while, nothing, you know, I had, I have some good credits, but nothing, you know, I never was able to like truly make my living as an actor but I did do some stuff and had a really you know um a great job when I was doing it and um met like just a ton of actors and I had this giant network of actors which was fantastic um great support group and I was in acting classes for the better part of like 15 years then the first DSLR camera came out and I told my family that year, please do not, um, I don't want any presents. I want cash. I want to buy a camera. And so I bought, you know, a Canon 5D, which is, you know, a big splash at the time. Yeah. I started, I just, it just like flew out of me. <laughs> like all those years of pent up filmmaking, I just started making shorts and web series and uh, a couple of really features and like just really um just shooting 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 and i had because i had this giant pool of talent also that were all my friends and they all wanted to do stuff and we were like oh let's get together and do stuff and you know my efforts um to begin with were clumsy and they were rusty and they were not great um and then after a while i started getting really good and um then 
I got this opportunity to um, start working on professional crews. And uh, then I, um, of course, through a personal connection, got um, my first uh, interview for a directing gig um, on a true crime show. And that was my entry into that world. And I've done three series. Um, I've done, the first one was eight episodes and I did another eight episodes and 12 episodes. So how much is that total? 28 episodes. <laughs> so the show working in that world has been incredibly uh, interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and strange. What's important when you're directing a reenactment of a true crime, like what's important to capture? Like what, what goes into it? What are you, what are you going for? So it's sort of like, um, um, you know, you, you have to watch all the real interviews with people and that's like really sad. Um, I, I hate that part. And, you know, when I'm on set with actors, it becomes fiction to me. So that's right. the, kind of the way I deal with it emotionally, because if you, you know, because every single one of these stories is, is incredibly sad and horrible. I just sort of pretend that I'm shooting a horror movie. <laughs> what it, the wonderful thing about shooting reenactments is that visually you get to kind of really do some interesting thing, cool things because it's very abstract, right? Mm. So you're telling a story without any of the sort of conventions of storytelling. You can't, there's no audio, like, you know, the, right. actors, the ones that I did, there was no dialogue and thank God. Um, but, you know, no dialogue. So you're telling the story visually. So you're, you're making the visual uh, complement to the story, to the voiceover stories mm -hmm. of people that really live the thing. Yeah. Right. And so you can, you know, stretch yourself visually beyond belief and do some really cool stuff. What's the, what's the favorite thing you've done or like an example of a really cool, like, Oh, we got this shot. Oh, I mean, just so many, so there's so many, um, but like, you know, lots of reflections, like shooting mm. through crystals, shooting through, you know, and the other thing is um, with the violence. So you don't want to, you don't want to really show the violence. You want right. to, you want to hint at it without actually being explicit. Right. And so that for also forces you to think, okay, how can I tell the story? And it's almost worse, honestly, to present that to the, to an audience because we feel the gaps in our mind and it's horrible. Right. It's the shark and jaws. Exactly. So in terms of like rapes and murders and whatever, I was shooting a million of these, right? So the implication is, so how do you do that visually, right? How do you imply that someone is being brutally murdered without actually showing the, the brutal murder? Yeah. So there's, there's methods that you sort of use um, uh, sort of things that we, you know, as, as my team and I sort of came up with that we used over and over again, but, um, but you're always discovering new and interesting ways to, to tell these stories. In a way, it's like Greek tragedies, like classic theater where it's like the violence all happens off stage. And it's like, it's, yeah. I mean, you're still using a lot of fake blood, you know, but like a splash of blood on a wall Right, as right. As opposed to showing someone being bit, beaten, you know, with a, with a club. Right? Or, yeah. So the splash on the wall could be more terrifying than the actual. Yeah. That's really cool. It's yeah. like almost more poetic. You, yeah. I mean, it's all, it's very, actually, it's very poetic and it's very artistic. Um, you know, I know these shows, they get a bad rap and, um, but the ones that I did are fantastic. <laughs> you should I have no doubt. That is amazing. <laughs> and so then, but you've also done some features. Yeah. So, um, in, in, in the meantime, you know, 
I, I always say, you know, I'm a filmmaker because I don't, you know, I've, I've done, I've done commercials, I've done infomercials, I've done, you know, internet promos I've done. I did, I haven't directed a, a, a narrative feature yet. Um, that's hopefully, you know, to come uh, because really my heart has always been in narrative, you know, yeah. um, and that's where I'm trying to go. But I did produce uh, a film that uh, was my baby. It was sort of my my love letter to, to cinema. And so amazing. this feature um, took me nine years to make. Wow. Um, kind of like a pregnancy, but instead of months, you have years. <sighs> <laughs> we got it done, which is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. But you got to be, man, talk about a marathon. It's definitely yes. the sprint. And yeah. Any yeah. film, any film that gets done and out is like a miracle in itself. Yeah. And you got to be a pit bull about yeah. it. You, know, you, you have to like say, I'm going to get this done if it kills me, because it might, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I'm incredibly proud of it. And also it started out as my baby. I was the first one on the project because I conceived of it. However, it very quickly became other people's babies. So ah. because, you know, film was not a is not a it's a, the, it's the strangest art form in that it is completely collaborative completely whether we like it or not collaborative so i always say my my movie but it's also other people's movies and yeah. other really talented amazing i was so lucky that i just had like the best experience working with the greatest people i'm still working with those people and well, everyone joined the project you know kind of just saying we're going to do something great at the time, I didn't direct it because I was acting in it and I didn't want, it was too much. And I was also producing. Yeah. And I also wasn't, uh, at the time, this was, we shot it in 2014. So it wasn't, I wasn't confident enough in my abilities as a director to like take on a feature. Mm. But my director, um, who I love to pieces, I'm still, we're still, we're doing, um, I can tell you, we have a project going on right now together. But, um, cool. you know, she is incredible. So I was really, really, really lucky to have um, just, you know, gathered uh, a yeah. group of people that were amazing. Well, and that's one thing I think is so important in this crazy town is that it really is all who you know. And if you do good work, people remember you and they want to work with you again and they want you to be on their team. Right. And so it's always astonishing to me when someone right. is a jerk on set because I'm like, what are you doing? Right. And I also... I can tell you that a lot of people, they get so excited about the project. They get, they want to do it so bad that they, their little spidey senses might be saying, you know what, maybe this person mm -hmm. is not the person for me, but they're bringing me money or they're bringing right. me whatever. Like, you know, they're just, I should just barrel ahead and do this. Yeah. And disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you're really setting yourself because we all have that voice inside. We all know yeah. if this is not going to be good. Right. And we ignore it because we want it so bad. Yeah. And it's almost like if you, I felt it when this thing came together, it was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm an atheist. So I don't really like, you know, but it was almost like um, the universe or the divine, whatever you, yeah. whatever you want to call it. It just felt right. Everything yeah. felt right. The people that were gathered around felt right. The the place where we shot it felt right. Everything felt like this is this is supposed to happen. Yeah. Well, you can feel it when it clicks into place. Right. And I love that. I, I had a I have a friend who shall remain nameless, who um, B list director I would say, um, directing a major feature, 
very high budget. Um, and it was the story of these two friends who overcome a huge disaster. And then there's a love interest who's a sort of like side C story, whatever. Um, money that came in was attached to her as an, the, the person ended up getting cast as the uh, love interest. She has the charisma of a rock. And so they shot this thing as written when it was, oh, that's what it was. Sorry. It was supposed to be about this love story of these two lovers escaping this ma ma massive disaster. And it ended up, they had to recut it because she was so bad that they had to cut it to be about the two friends, which wasn't really in the script. So predictably the film flopped because my friend did not listen to their intuition to go, it doesn't, you can't want it that bad, that badly that this, this person bringing in the money is not worth it. They're going to ruin your film. And sure enough, it was a great idea and it was totally ruined. Yeah. That happens actually often where, you know, actors with money or, or their parents have money and yeah. they become investors. And then, you know, I think that's a great idea. If you then take, you know, if you look at that actor and you go, what is that actor's strengths? Great. Let me, let, let's write something for them. Like let's write right. something that's right for them rather than trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Well, so in this time of shutdown and lockdown and quarantine, you've started writing like pants are on fire. Like yeah. it turned out so much stuff. And I know you had, you had already written some of it before, but whatever. Like I find you to be an extremely prolific writer and your work is funny and absurd and playful and it's just got this whole like you know nothing like true crime it's got this, <laughs> this really funny spirit to it so talk to me about like finding your voice now as a writer and what's what's exciting for you well thank you for that I just got notes actually on my pilot from a friend of mine who's a working tv direct, uh, uh, writer and uh they were devastating notes mm -hmm. so I, I needed that because Man, she hated this thing so much. What was the question again? I, <laughs> you just went to a dark place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, we can look for, we can talk about that later offline because there's yeah. the whole looking for the note behind the note, even if the yeah. notes are terrible. The question was, what is exciting to you about all the writing you're doing right now? Like what draws you to write these little situations? Because you've been turning out a lot um, of shorts. You know, what's, uh, what's weird about me is that I don't really consider myself a writer. I just have these ideas and I have to write them down. And it started, I think it was like, you know, when I was younger and when I, even when I was trying to be a filmmaker, like I just, you know, before I actually make my, made my living doing it, I, I didn't have the confidence in just letting my imagination. I, I just was told so much that I couldn't do it that I think yeah. I kind of shut down like for my twenties and, you know, into my thirties, I, I just, that part of my brain just kind of withered away and and died, even though it was, it was there all along. Yeah. And so then what happened was I, after my first series, I remember I did, um, I did my first series, my tr first true crime series. And I worked so hard on that. I mean, it's grueling. It's, you know, non-union, you have a tiny little crew. It's like, it's kind of like being back in film school in terms of mm. like the resources you have. Right. And you're working 15 hour days and you're, you know, shooting 4 million scenes a day and you're just moving at a pace that is just insane. It's like soap opera pace. Yeah, it really is. Um, and also like, there's something about these reenactments. It's like this, um, insatiable monster you got to feed it so there's you can't shoot enough basically for these mm. things 
Um, because there's always like some hole in the archival, you know, whatever, or they, yeah. you don't want to hold on people's, you know, heads too long. So you want yeah. to come away to stuff. So anyway, so I had gotten off of it and I was, I was exhausted. I was physically and mentally just drained. And I was also drained from being creative for someone else. Yes. And being creative so for much. money. Yeah. And I sat down, I had like, you know, I was, I was going to do a commercial and I had a couple weeks until I was going to do the commercial. So I had a tiny little window where I was not working and I just sat down at the computer and I, it's like, it almost like it, I vomited out. That's <laughs> why part. we call it the barf draft. Yeah. I, sh- I just wrote this thing, this, this short, it just came to me fully formed beginning, middle and end characters. Everything was there. And I just wrote it in like three hours. And, um, and then I was like, oh, this is probably terrible, but I'm going to sleep on it. So I slept on it. But then I read it a week later and I was like, you know what? This thing is actually pretty good. I like it. Um, and then that was the, the little crack. It was that, that short that I wrote. It was the little crack that said, hey, you know what? Like you have all these ideas. Like, yeah. Why are you not writing them? Um, so then I just started writing. And, you know, obviously when I'm working, I don't have time. So I just have these like in between little spurts of stuff that I can write. And then I committed to writing a feature and I joined a writer's group and we met, you know, once a week and I figured it out with my schedule so that I can do it. And I completed the feature and completed a whole bunch of drafts on this. And I love my feature. I want to make it one day, but, but it was just the permission. It was the permission to do it. Right. And then my brain just went, Oh, okay. We're doing this now. You know, I love it. Um, And so, and honestly, like, you know, when COVID hit and I'm not working at all, that's when I was like, all right, well, how can I still be creative? How can I still, because if I, if I don't, uh, if I don't do something creative, I will kill someone in my house. So Let's not and we that. don't want to have, a, we don't want a reenactment of that later. No, we don't want a reenactment of our own murder. So, <laughs> and I actually yeah. like the people that I live with. So that would be bad if I, if yeah. I murdered someone. So how can I maintain my sanity? Well, I have to, I have to go into these worlds that I create and I have to, I have to write them down. So, yeah. so I guess now like I'm a writer kind of, um, well, I, you have a great instinct. Say that out loud. Well, yeah, it is. It is scary to say it out loud. And that's like, but you do have a great instinct for it. And there's this, this, um, we talked to so many people on here that they have that, like they were told they couldn't do the thing. They weren't good at the thing, you know, by whoever in their past. And it's such a common thread of rediscovering that, like, wait a minute, I, I am good. I can do this. And, and the giving ourselves permission to express ourselves creatively. Right. And I think about people like um, P.T. Anderson and Quentin Tarantino and, um, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of other ones that, that are auteurs. And so, some of these men are just a little bit older than me. So, you know, they, you know, up to 10 years older than me. However, they were encouraged, right? Yes, Since they were, they were little boys. And yeah. then when they said, I'm, I'm going to be a director, everyone went, great, fantastic. Right. So, you know, it could, you could argue those guys are way more talented than me. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's, it's a matter of taste, right? Uh, yeah. I'm never, I'm never going to make those movies that they made. Um, they're never going to make the movies that I want to make either. Right. Yeah. But if I had, I just wonder, I always wonder what would have happened to my life if I, 
if I would have been given that permission, if I would have yeah. been encouraged, you know, by society, yeah. by my, by my mom, by, by everyone around me, you yeah. know, and instead in my twenties, I was, I was dismissed a lot. Yeah. That's so, I think that's such a common through line for women creative. I had the same, like I graduated from college, you know, with a degree in writing, but then still was like, even then I was like, Oh, I'm, I can't do that for like, you know, no one has tapped me on the shoulder and said, you get to be a writer kiddo. So I thought, well, I'll go work in like a marketing department and do that kind of writing. And so I did, I worked, you know, I went to New York and worked at comedy central doing marketing. Couldn't, I was trying to get over into the creative side to like actually do the shows, but I never could make the transition. And then, you know, it's finally like coming back here. And I'm like, if I don't try this, I'm going to regret forever that I didn't at least try it. And then finally it was just like the you know, acorn drops on the top of your head. Like no one's giving you permission. Yeah. You give yourself permission. Go. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and coming back to the jealousy thing, it's like, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of, of like women who are now entering, you know, going to film school and entering the, the yes. workforce yeah. because they are entering a different world than I was. Yeah. Uh, and they, you know, I have all, you know, I, I am now, now I have to deal with ageism, right? Because yeah. You know, so, but the point is that they, they are, they are entering a world where they don't have to fight for, I mean, they still do, they still do to a certain extent, but not like, not like me. No, no. I had a, um, I had a, a friend who took part in one of my, um, one of my web series. And then he's a singer, performer, extraordinary talent, and he wanted a music video. And so I kind of like came and pitched him this thing and, and he ended up going with this girl who, God bless her, just got out of film school, first time out the gate, and but she was allowed to use all the resources of the school. So like great camera package, great editing, all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I can't do that. I don't have free access to USC and their film. Awesome. Right. So it's like, you know, it's like, okay, he went with the yeah. young, fresh thing. And it's just like, wow, okay, that hurts a little. Yeah. <laughs> happy for her but ow what would you say to your 13 year old self that refused to shave her head like about your path well, ahead of you you know I I am lucky that I was raised by um by a feminist um you know my mom you know told me that I could do whatever I want and she told me that I have agency over my body and you know and then actually you know I had this conversation with her I remember I I, I turned um 25 and I was still in college because I was putting myself through college. And also I started college late because I, I was drafted into the Israeli army, which is what oh, wow. yeah. all Israeli citizens yeah. uh, do. And I was an officer and so I had to do more time. Um, so you're so, also a badass. <laughs> well, I actually do know how to kill people with my hands. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> you, you studied crowds? Uh, no, I actually used to run a nonprofit here in LA that taught, um, women, mostly women and girls, um, basically self-defense, but fully adrenalized, adrenaline state training. So like the, the, the guys with the big padded suits, that, oh. that was us. So like you have to fight full on as hard as you can, you know, until he goes down and, um, well, you probably know more than me because I was just taught in the context. It's based in crab and stuff, but it's, it's so satisfying. <laughs> Working with teenage girls also very rewarding for that. Yeah. And then to find their voices. 
Um, Even if they're now taking filmmaking jobs away from me, it's fine. Uh, so back to your question, what would I say to my... Um, yes. I got sidetracked, but I, I did want to say I had this conversation with my mom yes. when I was 25 where I was really angry at her. And I said, mm. you know, you lied to me. Mm. I can't do whatever I want in this world. There are limitations on me because, yeah. you know, and I grew up with brothers. So I had two brothers and the doors were, I felt, you know, they've had their own struggles, but they had different opportunities than me. And and she said, well, what did you want me to tell you that you, you're limited? Like, of course not. And I was hoping that from the time that I was young until you, I was hoping the world would change, you know, the world would yeah. be different. Um, so I think if I w- were able to go back to my 13 thir- year old self, I would say, you know, it, 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 it gets, gets better. You know, it, you just, you just have to persist, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I'm still in the struggle. I think, you know, most people are, Yeah. Um, you know, the people that have been incredibly successful are also in their own struggle because they, yeah. have to, you know, reproduce that success or maintain it or whatever weird people's psychology is. But yeah, at the moment, I'm, I'm trying really hard during this time of COVID not to focus on, you know, all the, this, the opportunities that have been you know, slammed in most people's faces um, and sort of focus on the things that I can't control. And writing is such a wonderful situation because you don't need anyone's permission. That's right. I remember seeing an interview with uh, Jim Carrey many years ago and they were, they were asking him about his painting. And that's, that's what he said. He said, I don't need anyone's permission to paint. I just, I get up and I have my cup of coffee and I go to the, the other room, which is my studio and I can paint. And I can express myself in any way, you know, because as an actor, you need so many, you need to say you. Yeah. You can't just act. You can't just walk out on the street and be like, I'm acting here, people. Right. And as a director, same thing. Yeah. Someone has to say her. Yeah. So um, It's the collaborative. It's that collaborative nature of this strange beast. Right. But yeah, the writing, I, I love writing for the same reason. It's just diving into that world. And, and like you were saying before, you feel it in your gut when it's clicking. Yeah. Like when, when, when a thing is working, a scene is working, a dialogue is working, you feel it in your gut. And it's right. just like, okay. And then you have a thing that's a real thing. You know, yeah. it's, it's it used to be, we used to print stuff out. Now it's, it lives in the digital world, but it exists in the world. These characters do exist that you created. Yeah. What, you know, most scripts will, will probably collect dust, um, but you never know. Like, but they, they all help your process. They all help you become a better writer. Like that's when I was starting at film school and I was like, every script I write is going to be produced, which is of course, you know, crazy. I, like you, I came to this realization of, wait a minute, there's limitations on women very late, <laughs> like Pollyanna late. But finally realizing that that wasn't the case, not everything I wrote was ever going to see the light of day. But it wasn't a waste of time because it makes me a better writer. And it took me a, a while to get that like, no, this isn't made. It's a waste of time. It's like, no, no, it isn't. You're a well, way better writer now. The more you do, it's the 10,000 hours, right? The more you do your craft, the better you get at yes. it. Yes. Uh, I, I certainly look back at like the first script I wrote at UCLA that I thought was amazing. And I look back at it now and I'm like, so embarrassed, you know, I'm like, oh, oh. my God. And, yes. you know, it's, but so if I, yeah, you could probably blackmail me with my, uh, my uh wood cartel (laughs) the wood cartel I love that but you know you were thinking outside the box it's like I like that's really cool that you thought that way like what if 
And that's the whole thing. The whole thing is, what if? Yeah, we couldn't grow trees anymore. And wouldn't what became... if we couldn't grow trees? But it is it. challenging, It's, but it's also really great. Yeah. Like, um, I discovered the the buzz, you know, of the writer's high, you know, when things are working and it's so, it's so, it's pleasurable, you know, yeah. it's the same pleasure that I get on set when I'm creating, you know, something that is pretty yes. magic because filmmaking is magical. It really know? is. You are creating magic. And when it's gelling, you're just like, Bleh! I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing better. It is a total high. Here. Um, and it's the same thing when you were creating a story on the page. You're just like, oh my gosh, like I have created something that didn't exist before. And these characters yeah. that are, you know, channeling all these ideas about life and politics yeah. and love and, you know, and so that's, it's pretty buzzy. It can be really, and, and I feel, also feel like people don't talk about that enough. They talk a lot about writer's block. They talk a lot about like the difficulties of writing. And yeah, writing is, is definitely hard. But there's also something no one talks about, the writer's buzz. We were shooting out on the Salton Sea once at sunset, and I had a dancer out on the salt flats, like doing with this amazing piece of red fabric, you know, and the sunsets, the and it's stunning. It's just such beautiful footage. And as she's doing this beautiful turn, this flock of birds comes through the frame and in front of the setting sun, and I just was like screaming. Like it was so beautiful and like, yeah. you know, it's just like that magic that you just can't plan for, but it's... Yeah, and that happens all the time on set. I, I right. love it. On, on my feature, there's a scene that happened. Um, it was a funeral scene and, and we were shooting in this location where we were planning to do it in, in indoors, right? And it was going to be like uh, we were going to dress our, our set to be like a, a, ch a church. We couldn't shoot in, indoors. Something happened to the location an hour before before we were supposed to shoot this scene. So it was like, oh, crap, what do we do now? So we thought, okay, let's go up to the roof. There's a beautiful roof. It overlooks this you know city. And so we're just going to shoot on the roof. And as our lead actor <laughs> is delivering this incredibly moving eulogy, this like gorgeous flock of birds just like flies behind him in the shot. It was, it was all just like, it, it was at sunset. It was just all oh. worked, you know, birds are mad. And that was a total accident. Yeah. I love that. You're like, yeah, that's production value. You could never have planned for or budgeted totally. for. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny that day that we had that sunset shoot with the birds, the dancer that we'd hired quit that, that day, like as we got out there, and she just drove off and we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And my friend who was with us to play some more acting scenes, she was like, well, I have some training in modern dance. And I was like, get out there. <laughs> so it turned out great. You know, so just like these disasters become these happy accidents. And yeah, that, that it happens all the time with casting. We had cast, um, we really wanted this one actress. Um, she said no, and we were devastated. And um, in retrospect, she was the wrong person for the role. Yeah. Um, and we didn't, we couldn't see it until we got the right person in. Right. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that. Don't be too attached just to move it forward because there are reasons that yeah. you're getting that feeling or that person fell out or whatever. And right. Well, so what's next for you? Well, my friend sent me an article today about some, uh, a first AD that just died um, oh, from geez. COVID. Yeah. After working a couple of commercials. Um, and so I'm like, ah, uh, I'm in no hurry. Okay, yeah. Let's um let's ride this 2020 out here because yeah. keep writing. Don't know if I want to roll the dice. Um 
even though I miss it like crazy, like I'm dying to get back on set. So I'm doing a lot of writing. And then in, in, in the interim, um, the director of my, my feature, America Young, and I have teamed up and we are doing a podcast series. Um, yep. It's called Undiscovered Scripts. Movies, oh, cool. made, movies Made of Paper. And basically we said, okay, how can we still be creative? Like, how can we still produce work that, that the world can, you know, you know, we have all, we have so many resources. We have all these actors um, in our network. We have great writers who have these amazing screenplays that have never been produced uh, for various reasons. Why not give them life in the form of a voice um, situation? So it's, it's like an old time radio show where mm-hmm. we are acting out the, the screenplay in in chunks, right? So we have a half an hour, po- so like a feature would be three episodes. Three of episodes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And so we are now doing our first feature, um, which um, you're going to, it's called Back to Back to the Future. And it's a fantastic script um, written by one of America's friends. And it's, you'll see why it could never this movie could never be produced because the main characters I mean it takes place in the world of back to the future and so when the main characters are like Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg and and right. then there's the whole cast from back to the future and there's all this back to the future stuff so like there's no way you could, would get permission right to, yeah that's um, genius we're recording the whole thing on zoom and I'm directing it um and um and we already have like, you know, we're, we're planning to continue this. And when we have like, you know, a good chunk of maybe six or seven scripts that we've done, then we're going to release it as a podcast. The idea is that we're going to keep on doing this because, you know, we want to do our own version of the, of the blacklist. Yes. Oh, I love that. And also we want to give uh, opportunities for these screenplays that, you know, maybe don't haven't had attention or haven't had financing uh, to get out somehow into the world, even yeah. if it's just in a, in a podcast form. I love that. It's so good. Um, so, and there's certainly plenty of great scripts floating around. Yes. So uh, many. So Some many. on my very computer. <laughs> yes. So, so many. I have a question. Like, is there a place where we can see some of your work? Like the shows, you know, I think you can probably see them on Oxygen Network uh, website. I think they play them pretty much on a loop on the Oxygen Network. It is cool that it's like a sought-after genre of TV making. That like, yeah, and it's also I have to say like I've learned to really appreciate the genre because um, sometimes sometimes it feels very um, exploitative and sometimes it feels very um, cathartic because it is an opportunity for the people involved, law enforcement and the families, et cetera, to tell their story, right? Um, but it is turning their story into entertainment. Yeah. So it it's sort of like, it's a weird genre, but it's, but all these cases are really interesting. It's, it's interesting. I've learned a lot about law enforcement, way more than I ever wanted to know. I have learned that when, when people, when detectives and FBI agents are good, they are amazing. And there's also a lot of incompetent ones, but usually when these cases are solved and, and um, I did a whole series on kidnappings. And so kidnappings is even, so my first series um, was called three days to live. And it was about 
you know, the reason why it was called three days to live is because statistically, if you're kidnapped, you know, law enforcement has three days yeah. to find you. If, if you your, your chances plummet after yeah, we find you within three days. So each episode started out with the kidnapping and you didn't know until the end of the episode, whether they found the person, if she was alive, you know, et cetera. And every single time they found the person, it was because of amazing, amazing law enforcement people who did not give up, who like worked 24 seven, well and burning the midnight oil, overturning every single lead. Like, and I'm in awe of those people. Yeah. It's like so they- it's given me a, a big appreciation for that, you know, and it's also, it's very, cool. it's very depressing because I'm just like, how are we, do we have all these stories of kidnappings and murders? So we have enough for all these TV shows. Like that's depressing, right? I wish they didn't <laughs> exist in the world. Yeah. It's one of those, like, you wish you could be worked out of a job because there were no more murders to talk about. Right. You could make reenactments of um, happy fluffy ponies after that. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, one of my employer employers um, was doing uh, the puppy bowl. That was one of his. Uh, and I'm like, uh, how that would be, how that would be so like, fun to be on that. Two murders all day long. And, he, yeah. and, and the other filmmakers in your crew get to go like, go play with puppies all day long. That is not fair. That would be gold. The same, like I had always been told I couldn't draw because I was, I had a, an incident when I was like very young that I was like, oh, you can't draw, you're, you're, you're terrible at this. And so, and then like years of like evidence, right? Like I would do my storyboards with like stick figures that were all like malproportioned and weird. And, you know, I'd come to set and my crew would be like, what is this? Is this a foot? <laughs> or I'm like, it's a person that like, can't like, you know. So I always get made fun of for how bad my drawing is. And finally, like my friend started t- um, talking about she's an artist and she does classes. And I started just taking the classes because it's called make mistakes, the name of her class. So it's all about like, just don't have any expectations. And it turns out I'm not that terrible of an artist and, you know, just drawing. And it's just that, that, you know, finding, like you were saying, that crack opens back up to that part of your brain that you shut down because people said you can't do this. Yeah. Do you have, what's, what do you recommend right now for, quarantine viewing anything you're binging or enjoying or rediscovering you know what it's it's um it is the golden age i mean there is just so much great content um there's a really a lot of great stuff coming out of israel actually Hmm. um that you can now find on amazon and netflix and it's all over the place i noticed that a lot more foreign content is popping up on all the streamers because i think they're running out of content yeah. Um, yeah. We started watching Norsemen out of Norway and we adore it. It's so silly and funny. Yeah. In 2016, I went to Sundance for the first and only time. And I went there because I was seeking financing. My idea was to make a documentary. I wanted to make a doc about a woman director. And I wanted to follow her after she has a major festival release and to see what opportunities and comes her way. Mm. And because I wanted to prove that there, there aren't right. any, right? Yeah. And I got a whole bunch of meetings um, through that, and had like big meetings with co- companies, and I had I had a great pitch. Um, uh, I, I basically uh, when I was in Sundance, I gathered all the. And have you guys ever been to Sundance? Yeah. Okay. So you know how they have like free back issues of like cinema sure. magazine and the Hollywood Reporter, like all these magazines, right? 
And so I would bring my stack of magazines into the meeting and I'd say, okay, I want you to flip through these and I want you to stop when you see a woman. And they would be flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping and flipping. I love it. And they go, oh, there's a woman. And I'd say, yeah, she's an actress. Okay, let's move on. Flip, 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 flip. Wow. Oh, she's an actress. Again, an actress. Anything else? Let's see if we can find some. Couldn't find any, right? And I'd say, okay, that's it. That's my pitch. Like, <laughs> which I thought was a genius pitch. I thought yeah, great visual aids, point driven home. Um, and all of these meetings were with men, without exception, white men. Yeah. And none of them financed my, my film. Um, someone else did a, a, not the version that I wanted to do, but she did a great job. Um, um, she made a duck called uh, Half the Picture. Oh, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so you I, you can see it on Stars. I think it's streaming on Stars. Uh, great filmmaker, um, and she, but she basically proved my point. Um, she she did what I was gonna do, and she just did it on her own dime. And I didn't was not passionate enough about documentaries to to do that. But um, since that time, I remember six months later, after I had all these failed meetings it started exploding in the news. Like we had the Harvey Weinstein stuff and the Me Too and it all sort of co- code, you know, it was started a real thing that we have a real disparity in the entertainment industry between yeah. women not having opportunities and not having opportunities. And then it started getting better. And then every year, incrementally, it was getting better and better and better until in 2019, I think we had a pretty, I mean, not parody, but we were in a lot of places close to it or reaching it. And there were people that were committing to do it, like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes, mm. so like all these people that were saying, okay, we're going to have 50% women directors. We're going to have our writer's rooms are going to be diverse, you know, or whatever. And I feel like now that the pandemic has hit, you know, all of these doors have been like slammed in our faces again. And there's sort of like, it's sort of like, I feel like it, the analogy is like you're, you're rock climbing, right? You're climbing up this mountain and then you're almost at the top. And then you realize, Oh, the whole thing is made out of uh, margarine and, or butter. And you start slipping down again <laughs> because what I've heard is that they're going back to this. Okay. We're not going to have any shadowing programs. So all those, mm. you know, so we're not giving opportunities for anyone to, to learn practice crack the door and then also we're instead of having a guest director for instance on a tv show every episode we're, we're going to give it to two directors and we're going to split the season into two so we have less people on set mm. right and so who are they going to hire for those jobs the people with the largest resumes and who are right. those people the men so oh man i hope that's i hope that's not how it's going to play out but i i see your point and i fear it I, I fear it too, um, but I have no control over any of that. No, so. and I mean, it's undeniable that women creators are putting out such amazing content right now that they really can't be like, you and your little lady brains don't know what you're doing. We're going to just go back to all the boys. So like, even if it, I, I'm hopeful that even if it swings back a little bit for a while, it'll very quickly course correct. I, I hope so. I mean, it'll be a different world when we're out of this pandemic. It but certainly will. Until we are, which I don't know when we are going to be. So we'll see. No one knows. It's a plot twist we haven't yet written. Yeah. <laughs> Find Zaki's film, The Concessionaires Must Die, on iTunes or at cmdthemovie.com. Next time on Hearthside Salons, 
Born in Kenya, Perez Owino is a storyteller of two cultures. From a script she co-wrote being produced by Taraji P. Henson and being nominated for an NAACP Image Award, to her International Screenwriting Association Fast Track Fellowship for another script, Perez's work focuses powerfully on the experience of the African diaspora. She's proven she's an artist with something to say and the means to say it. We'll talk about what inspires her and what she's saying next. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well.